0: But again, John chapter 7, we look at verses 1 to 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. That your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Our Heavenly Father, we continue to see extreme division in our nation. Lord, it says in your word, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. May we continually be mindful of that. Lord, you are on the throne. You are the king. You are our hope. Lord God, let us not be swayed by the whims of the world, but let us be grounded in the truth of who you are. Lord, we ask that you bless our time in your word. May we come to you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, again, John chapter 7, several weeks ago when we started chapter 6. I had mentioned that chapters 6, 7, and 8 are a section of John where we see a lot of themes that take us back to the Exodus and the Israelite wanderings. We certainly saw that in the feeding of the multitudes as that harkened back to God's provision of manna for the Israelites during their wanderings. And these Exodus themes will continue into this chapter, especially as we consider the feasts which are instituted during the Exodus events. We also saw in chapter six, connection to the Old Testament in the Exodus based on the time of year. Chapter six told us it was Passover. Passover, the Jewish holy day, which celebrated God's redemptive work of freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. It would also be at Passover when Jesus was crucified. So in John 6, we see the time of year. And again, in chapter 7, we see that it's the Feast of Booths. Passover is in the spring. The Feast of Booths is actually in the fall. Um, so we're several months into the future between chapters 6 and 7. And that's definitely something that John likes to do in this gospel, is tie the events in Jesus' ministry to the various Jewish holidays and feasts. And in that, we see that Jesus is the greater fulfillment of the Jewish feasts and what they ultimately point to. So it's the time of year of the Feast of Booths, and Jesus' attendance at this feast will come into question in this passage. And we'll look in this morning's passage in three scenes. And with that, we'll jump right into chapter 7. In the beginning of the passage, we see the, the setting of the story. Verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Again, John starts the passage after this, and the this that he's referring to is Jesus' bread of life discourse in the previous chapter. And we had concluded that chapter in looking at the way people responded to Jesus. Some walked away, others followed him. John says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. But again, it's about six months in the future. Jesus is in Galilee, but John adds the note that Jesus would not go about in the region of Judea because the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. That's not the first time we've seen opposition in John's Gospel, but really the opposition to Jesus starts to to really pick up in this seventh chapter. By no means is Jesus having a lighthearted disagreement with the opposition, but it's bloody opposition as they want to see Jesus dead. Verse 2 says, Now the Jews' Feast of Booths Was at hand. We've already noted that. The timing of the Feast of Booths, when Jesus should go, and when he did go are all important elements of this passage. Continuing into verse 3 So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, Show yourself to the world. We see Jesus' brothers who were originally introduced in chapter 2 at the wedding feast, come back into the gospel. And they suggest that Jesus go to Judea and they say to him, no one works in secret but seeks to be known openly. Their point seems to be that if you want people to believe in you, you've gotta be seen. You've gotta market yourself. Cinderella has to go to the ball. It's interesting though when you think about the situation. Jesus' brothers give him advice. I think of the areas where we like to have opinions where we're not necessarily experts on the topic. Play calls in football, military strategies, foreign policy decisions, economics, what a doctor should or should not do. I'm not judging that because I have opinions on things too. But none of us are experts on every domain of life. And really, a lot of our information comes from people who are experts. But here we have Jesus' brothers telling him that he should go to Judea so that his works can be seen. They're telling God what he should do. The all knowing, all wise, righteous Lord needs advice from his younger brothers. For anybody who has younger siblings, you never need their advice. <laughs> it's not all that different, though, from how the world often treats God, his word. If we make our own moral judgments about God's wisdom. Would we sin? I think of God's providence, but we so often rebel and grumble against that. I understand the value of lament and of the hurt that our sin and the sins of others causes. But it can also be so tempting to look at situations and to forget that our Lord is all-knowing, all-good, and that he is working all things together for good. And in that... We can end up judging God's providence, judging his perfect will. We can do the same thing for things that God allows to happen in nature or in the world, where we judge God for what he does. The world likes to judge God for being a judge. The world likes to judge God for punishing sin. The world likes to try to dictate to God what what love is, what justice is, what goodness is. for commands in Scripture with which we disagree. We like to find reasons of why they don't apply. On and on and on. Isaiah 45.9 says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots? Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. The point of that verse is that fallen humanity is the clay who complains against the potter who made us. In our pride and sinfulness, humanity in our heart of hearts so often likes to think that we know better than God. And so there's irony that Jesus' brothers suggested to him what he should do. Now, there's debate among scholars as to why they gave him his, this advice? Are they trying to be supportive of Jesus and just point him to what they think is best? It's possible. Although it should be noted that in verse 5 of our passage, the text tells us that his brothers did not believe in him. That is to say, they did not believe in his lordship. Jesus' brothers have had a lifetime of seeing his righteousness, they've seen his ministry. They've seen signs, but they don't believe who he is. And his commentary on John Richard Phillips says, if anything can prove the depravity of the human heart, it is this. Sometimes people say that they don't believe God because they don't feel that they have enough evidence. In the Bible, you see people interacting with Jesus, seeing his ministry and miracles, who still don't believe. In the Old Testament, Abraham had personally been given the promise of God for land and offspring, but we still see him struggle with doubt at times. We see him respond with laughter at the idea that him and Sarah could have a child in their old age. You see the Israelites miraculously freed from slavery, the parting of the Red Sea, but then they quickly turn to idolatry. They had decades of God providing for them, providing manna, sustaining them in their wanderings. And yet, they continue to fall into sin and grumbling. It's easy to think that if we had a little bit more of the picture, a little bit more of a sense of God, then everything in our life of faith would suddenly be easy. But that wouldn't change the fact that we're still sinful people. Jesus' brothers had been in his presence for their entire lives. And at this point, they did not believe. Think about the great spiritual privilege that was. I know we can have a sense of burden, a real sense of responsibility for people in our own families who are not believers. And we should care about that. And we should pray for our families, pray for opportunities to share the gospel, to talk about faith. But we have to remember that no matter who you are or how good you are or how faithful you are, it's beyond your control. Jesus had a real-life family who interacted with him and lived with him, and yet they still struggled. And while we're on the subject of Jesus' brother's There is another point that I think Warren's mentioned. Jesus had siblings. The historical teaching of the Catholic Church is that Mary remained a virgin for her entire lifetime. That's not supported in the Bible. It's actually contradicted in the Bible. And that these are his siblings. Some have argued that maybe they're other relatives or cousins. Greek has a word for cousin, and that's not what they use here. They're his brothers. He had siblings. He had a family. His siblings are referenced other places in the New Testament. Matthew 13, his brothers are named. Verses 55 and 56. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Not that Judas. And are not all his sisters with us? Jesus had a family. And guess what? One of the things that we see in the Gospels is that Jesus sometimes had a complicated relationship with that family. So if you think that your family is dysfunctional, just remember that there were people who were related to Jesus and they did not understand him or always get along with him. That's not to say Jesus was sinful or sinned or was, he didn't, he was perfect but that you could have a perfect person in your family and still struggle to get along with them. And we see examples of this familial strain in the Gospels. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Jesus is growing in popularity. Crowds are following him. But we see a response of his family early on in his ministry. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And as our passage in John explicitly tells us, Jesus' brothers did not believe. Some of his brothers eventually came to faith. Two books in the New Testament are written by brothers of Jesus, James and Jude. But at this point in his ministry, When we are about six months away from the time that Jesus would go to the cross, they still don't believe. Back in our passage, we've seen the unsolicited advice from Jesus' brothers. And there's another comment that I think warrants mention by way of application. I think of how important a strong family is. I think of when I was finishing up seminary and, and looking at where to go as far as, should I be like an associate pastor or a youth pastor or try to find a church and be the lead preaching pastor? That last one is ultimately what I knew I wanted to do, but I was single when I graduated seminary. And I thought, I think it'd be tough to be a pastor and be a single person, at least for me. I think about how thankful I am for Carrie and how supportive she's always been. She knew what she was getting into when she married a pastor. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not that I already tricked her into marrying me, which a little bit of that happened, but it's not <laughs> that I tricked her into marrying me and then became a pastor. Uh, now she she got in in the beginning. But how important it is to have a, a strong family, uh, and not just in ministry for anybody, to have, to have strong family support. And I think about the things that Jesus endured in his ministry. I mean... Even in the beginning of this passage, there are people plotting to kill him. There were people who wanted to use Jesus in the Gospels to suit their own ends, to be the king that they wanted him to be. There were people in Jesus' inner circle who denied him and betrayed him. And again, people who plotted against him. And through all of that, aside from maybe Mary, we don't see really any support from Jesus' own family. There are so many ways where Jesus relates to us in his humanity. And family dysfunction is one of them. Continuing in our passage, Jesus responds, verses 6 through 8, and that brings us to our second scene in the passage. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus says, My time has not yet come. I think the point is that in going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, his time to do that has not yet come. Because he is not on man's schedule or timeline. Jesus' brothers want to suggest that Jesus capitalize on the autumn holidays and go present himself in Jerusalem. They tell him what they would have done, but they didn't see the world as Jesus saw it. There are several reasons why it's not the right time. As the beginning of the chapter informed us, there were Jewish leaders seeking to kill Jesus But more importantly, Jesus is always sensitive to the divine will. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We see in the Gospels that Jesus is led by God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Led by the Spirit. Richard Phillips' commentary points out that God had ordained a specific time for the birth of Christ, Galatians 4.4, 4. when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God had ordained a specific time for the death of Christ, John 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And he ordained the timing for the events in the life and ministry of Jesus. Again, Jesus' brothers wanted him to show himself, his signs, make a big display at the feast. But that was not the divine will. And that is why Jesus is saying that the time had not yet come. Because he was on God's timeline, not man's timeline. John tells his brothers in verse 6, Your time is always here. Their time is always here because their focus and mission is still on the things of the world, not the things of God. And so it doesn't matter when they go to Jerusalem. But Jesus' time has not yet come because he is serving a heavenly purpose. Verse 7 Jesus specifically connects his brothers to the sinful world. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world doesn't hate Jesus' brothers because they're just following the ways of the world. But Jesus came to bring light into a dark world, and the world hates that. John 3:19. "This is the judgment. Jesus says, "This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil." Jesus continues speaking to his brothers, verse eight. "You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. I find verse 8 to be the most interesting verse in this passage. Jesus tells his brothers to go to the feast. That's straightforward enough. But Jesus says that he will not be going up, if you look at the text, to this feast. It's interesting that it's translated as... I am not going up to this feast instead of, I am not going up to the feast. The ESV, NASB, NIV, King James all say this instead of the. Those are the only translations I checked. Most of the major ones probably also say this if I had to venture a guess. If Jesus says, I am not going to the feast, it would seem that He's saying that he's not going to the Feast of Booths that's being celebrated. But when he says, I'm not going to this feast, that seems to imply that he's going to another feast. Makes sense? Certainly as I was writing this, I kept thinking about the Ohio State University and how little words like that make a difference. This, the, a, you know, things like that. I'm not going up to this feast. And also the word going up is interesting. Now, from where Jesus is in Galilee, to go to Jerusalem actually is at a higher elevation. So you literally would be going up to Jerusalem. But as we see many times in this gospel, I think that Jesus' words here have a double meaning. Jesus has used phrases in this gospel so far. Going up, lifted up, ascending. In other places in John. And I think it refers to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. And when Jesus says that it's not time for him to go up to this feast. He's looking forward to a future feast. Where he would go up the Passover. The following spring when he would go up on the cross. And that brings us to our third and final scene in this passage. Continuing in the text. Verse 9. Into 10. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. Jesus goes to the feast. Just two verses before, I thought Jesus said he wasn't going. He wasn't going on the timeline of his brothers. Again, he was on the divine timeline. Jesus does not go to make a grand entrance at the feast, but he is gone, and at the beginning, he is quietly attending. He's one among many Israelites who have gone to Jerusalem to observe the holiday. Jesus goes in private, but the text will tell us that there were people on the lookout as opposition was increasing. Verse 11. The Jews were were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Continuing in the passage. And there was much muttering among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. There is a buzz about Jesus. There are people at the feast who did want to see him. And in the passage, we see the differing opinions where some are favorable to Jesus, while others fear that he is leading people astray. That's how the gospel always is. It is a divisive message. There are people who are drawn to the gospel, and there are people who are offended and hate the gospel. But just as Jesus has gone to the feast in private it's interesting in the text that we see that the response to Jesus is also largely in, in private and in, in the quiet and muttering, most likely out of fear for the ruling authorities possibly retaliating against people who were sympathetic to Jesus' message. And so the passage ends with Jesus arriving at the Feast of Booths. He's in private. But as the passage unfolds, Throughout the rest of chapter 7, over the following weeks, we'll see Jesus more and more come to the forefront at the feast. We talked a little bit about this feast, the Feast of Booths, at the beginning. Providentially, it's pretty good timing in the year to come to this chapter 7, when the Israelites were celebrating the Feast of Booths. There are three Jewish holy days in the fall, or celebrations in the fall. Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. Which is actually this weekend. A second is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which is the most sacred day in the Jewish life, which represents the atonement for sacrifice, or the the atonement for sin and God's forgiveness. Yom Kippur is next weekend. I'm debating preaching on that next weekend, but we'll see. The third major Jewish holy day is the Feast of Booths. Which is where Jesus is arriving this morning. The Feast of Booths is how it's translated in John. I don't love the translation booths because it makes me think of restaurant booths. More literally, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Tents, Feast of Gathering, sometimes referred to as the Hebrew, the term sukkot. Those all refer to the same thing. And it's an eight-day celebration. And it's a joyous celebration that corresponds to the fall harvest, a time of thankfulness, and it calls attention back to the Israelite wanderings in the desert during their 40 years. That's the purpose of the holiday, remembering the Israelite wanderings. And the significance of the booths or tabernacles or tents is that sleeping in the tents during the feast is reminiscent of the Israelites sleeping in man-made structures during their own desert wanderings. And again, the, the celebration has a lot of resonance with the Exodus event. Sleeping in tents was also paying homage to Jewish farmers who sometimes had to sleep in these structures during their time of harvest. And for eight days... Again, Jewish people slept in these tents that they had made. Sukkot includes water and light ceremonies which will both become relevant in chapter 7, and Jesus will explain how these elements ultimately point to him. Things where he says, I am the light of the world. This year, Sukkot actually falls from October 2nd to the 9th. So again, we're at the same time of year as this celebration. A day like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is meaningful, but it's not an especially joyous celebration. It's a pretty somber event because it's, again, calling your sin to mind. So it's kind of like Good Friday, where Good Friday is not usually like a big, boisterous, happy celebration. It's, it's a reflection on, on sin. Sukkot, on the other hand, is more like Closest comparison I can think of is, it's like having infield camping at a NASCAR race. It's just a, not exactly like that, but it's, it's a celebration. Sukkot was a holiday you would look forward to. Again, Yom Kippur is very meaningful and significant. Uh, the Feast of Booths is more of a celebration. Um, once again, Richard Phillips' commentary is helpful in considering the feasts. I mentioned some of the fall holidays that the Jewish people celebrate. Also in the Israelite calendar, you have three what are called pilgrimage feasts, where Jewish people in the first century would have traveled to Jerusalem from all over Israel. And the three feasts, you have Passover, which is in the springtime. Obviously, it's at Passover when Jesus was sacrificed. Passover is remembering God's deliverance for Israel. It's symbolized by the sacrifice of lambs. And Jesus is the perfect and spotless lamb who was sacrificed to deliver and redeem people from their slavery and sin. Passover points to salvation. Seven weeks after Passover, you have the Feast of Weeks, or also called Pentecost. That's the second of the pilgrimage festivals. Passover, it coincided with the time of year when the Israelites left Egypt. Pentecost coincides with the time of year when God gave the law to Israel at Mount Sinai. And certainly, both of those days have resonance in Christianity. Again, Passover is the time of year where we celebrate Good Friday and Easter. Pentecost Sunday commemorates God pouring out His Spirit on the early church. And so we have this progression in the year between Passover to Pentecost to the Feast of Booths. But there is also this progression that you have Easter comes first before the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. And for the Israelites, the Feast of Booths was a fall harvest celebration that also looked forward to a time of future hope in God's promises. The Feast of Booths was a time that looked forward. For the Israelites, they looked forward to the coming year. They looked forward to next year's planting. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 14 points forward to a future time, which talked of people coming from the nations to Jerusalem together together to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Zechariah 14, 16. Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And so when Jesus' brothers want him to make a grand entrance at the Feast of Booths, the timing is not right. The Feast of Booths was a celebration, but before the celebration is appropriate, the Lord needs to go to the cross. As Philip says, they were advising him to put on a crown without first taking up his cross. That is why Jesus could not go to the festival on his brother's terms. It was not the right time. It's interesting. He goes up to the Feast of Booths, Again, I prefer the term Feast of Tabernacles. And as I've mentioned many times in our study of John, Jesus is the true tabernacle. He's the place where God meets us in the world. So one last time, as we close, consider the situation. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, and the true tabernacle is there. But he goes quietly, and largely unnoticed, because sinful humanity wants to see him killed. And just as the Feast of Tabernacles was a time when the Jewish people looked forward to a future hope, the true tabernacle, Jesus, the presence of God in the world, went up to Jerusalem a final time at Passover, where he would go up to the cross and give up his life so that the same sinful world who killed him could have redemption and have a eternal future because of his death and resurrection. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of eternal life that is promised through your Son. And may that be our hope, and may that be where we trust. Lord, please bless us this week. May we serve you and your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.